This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by BlendJet. Now, I'm not a big breakfast guy. I either don't eat breakfast or I have a single piece of toast or sometimes I'll make a smoothie. The problem with my blender at home is that it's big, it's bulky, it's really loud, it's hard to clean, and sometimes the ice or the frozen fruit gets jammed in the blades, and so I can't actually make the smoothie. But I recently got the BlendJet 2, which is a portable handheld blender, which lets me blend up my smoothie here at home or at the office. I can give it to my son to use to create a protein shake when he's at the gym, or if I'm on vacation, I can even make a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder. It's powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and like frozen fruit. It's whisper quiet so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. And to charge it, you only need to use a USB-C and it charges for more than 15 blends. But best of all, and this is the part I really like, is that it cleans itself. So all you need to do is put some water in there with a drop of soap and you're good to go. So what are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today and be sure to use the promo code policyviz12, that's policyviz12, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, the power, and the innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the offer code POLICYVIZ12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Welcome back to the PolicyViz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode of the show, I am so excited to be joined by Jen Christensen from Scientific American. Jen has a fantastic new book, Building Science and Graphics, that will help anyone who's working with data, and particularly scientists, do a better job presenting their information, creating graphics, telling stories with their data and with their science. And what's really, I think, fabulous about this book is she kind of walks you through the process of creating better visualizations. So it's not sort of your basic DataViz 101 type book, but gets you into the process of creating more in-depth and better graphics. I mean, really, at the end of the day, that's really what this book is about. So it's a really interesting book. Jen and I have a great conversation. And so here's this week's episode of the Policy This Podcast with Jen Christensen, author of the new book, Building Science Graphics. Hi, Jen. So good to see you. Hello. Thanks for having me back. It's been a long time since we've seen each other, right? Since yes. The pandemic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to see you. Congrats on this new book, Building Science Graphics. Very exciting. How long did this take you to pull together? Oh, gosh. Well, see, um, the first email from Alberto Cairo, my uh, my editor, one of my co-editors on the piece, um, was February two years ago. So that's when he reached out oh, to okay. see if I had ever thought about writing a book. And so that right. kind of kicked off the proposal process. Okay. Well, a lot of the content had been uh, pulled together from various talks I've given over time and blog posts and things. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't completely right. starting from scratch. I kind of had a general idea of, of a few major themes I wanted to discuss. Right. But as I'm sure, like I've had that too, where I'm like, oh, I've got this all written down. It's all in my head. I just got to get it into book form. Like, yeah, no problem. But <laughs> that's the that's where the rubber hits the road. And, and we're, I want to talk to you about this a little bit uh, in, in a bit, but like 
the design of the book is quite unique as well. Um, and I want to talk about the, the layout and how you actually went through the whole process of building it. But before we get there, I want to just ask like a general, this is like a meta Jen Christensen question, which is like, what do you find special about science graphics? Well, first of all, I think science graphics, and I, I think this is important to state up front, science graphics are beholden to the same best practices and design principles as graphics that communicate non-scientific information. So I don't think they're exempt mm -hmm. from a lot of, you know, the design best practices. But um, I think it's fair to say that they may deal with some challenges more routinely than graphics about other subject matter. Things like um, communicating complexity, mm -hmm. visualizing uncertainty, and combating misinformation. I mean, like those themes occur across mm -hmm. all different kinds of graphics, but I think yeah. they, it, it happens a lot in the science realm. Um, but I think they're most unique in that the content they convey is rooted in a process that a lot of people aren't familiar with. So this idea of bodies of mm -hmm. kind of scientific knowledge is built like one step at a time. And it's the self-correcting enterprise that kind of happens slowly. Um, so conclusions that are rooted mm -hmm. in evidence that are shown in a graphic um, might be true at one moment in time, but the interpretations might shift a little bit as additional evidence is collected. So you kind of need to figure out how to provide the context that your audience needs mm -hmm. and help them understand where this kind of fits in a larger research arc. Right. I mean, I also would suspect, and I want to talk, I do want to talk about this as well for the scientist. I mean, there's the reader side of understanding the sort of the content, but it's also on the scientist side, right? Of thinking about how to communicate to a broader audience. When they're working with you, and maybe we should talk about this, but when they're working with you at Scientific American, it's not like they're using all the jargon that they would use in the academic version. Well, I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because scientists are charged with developing graphics a lot. Journal articles, poster presentations, like imagery is a really common language, you know, form of, of communication that's used in the science world for scientists to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm and eventually to broader audiences, whether it's for the scientists directly or through other designers. Yet, there's not a lot of training uh, for scientists to learn how to do yeah. that. Um, and so right. I, I think that it was just kind of important to get a lot of just baseline information out there for folks who might be a little bit mm -hmm. new to the topic. Was that your main motivation? And I want to dive into some of the more specific pieces of the book, but there's like whole chunks of like the whole third part of the book, for example, is kind of like a roadmap on how to build scientific graphics for someone who does not have like a degree in design. Like, was that your motivation was to help scientists just do a better job? That was one of the motivations and probably the primary motivation, um, mm -hmm. because I feel like designers okay. who are already involved in, in developing graphics um, might find certain chapters of this book a little bit familiar. But I think there's whole sections mm -hmm. within it that um, would help different kind of target audiences. But I think the folks who are going to get something mm -hmm. out of it from page one to 300 and something, how many pages are in here, <laughs> are scientists. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Maybe it would help folks if you could talk a little bit about your process of working with scientists at Scientific American. Like, I feel like that process maybe folks don't realize because you do a lot of stuff in-house and also work with a lot of freelancers and helping scientists build different types of things. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that process to sort of 
I'm just thinking about like a scientist who's listening. To this is like, Oh, I would love to have my new paper on blah, blah, blah in scientific American. Like how do I get to the point where I could work with Jen and get something great in the magazine? Well, that's um, kind of a, a, a split question because part of that is based on um, how we get manuscripts into the magazine to kind of determine whether or not mm-hmm. it's a story that we want to print. And so that goes through, honestly, mm-hmm. a text first kind of approach and it gets, you know, um, right. okay. so, but, but once we accept manuscripts, um, then it comes to the point of reading mm-hmm. them and seeing what graphics might have been included and what kinds of visuals or ideas the, the author might have. But that's also where um, uh, mm-hmm. the internal team kind of, uh, you know, me and and uh, my colleague Amanda Montanez, who works on uh, news graphics, we kind of read through these manuscripts and try to figure out when a graphic would be useful to convey some of the information in the story. So we're kind of going through this process, mm-hmm. and that's what I tried to outline in the book um, on, at a few different levels, is like to get across this idea that there are several steps that you take. And just because you're a professional designer doesn't mean you just like kind of jump in and kind of create this amazing visual or a visual that looks good. You know, it's this process of mm-hmm. determining whether or not a graphic would be useful because they take a lot of resources, both time and money sometimes. Um, what's the goal of the, mm-hmm. that graphic? And what are the benchmarks that you need to have in order for the whole team to come together and kind of uh, evaluate if that graphic is successful at different stages along the way? Um, so in the book, I kind of mm-hmm. describe how I do that in a magazine setting uh, with three primary steps where everybody's providing feedback. That's like a concept sketch, tight sketch, final art. Um, but there's um, mm-hmm. a flowchart and decision tree, uh, a couple of them in this book that actually just sort of walk folks through one step at a time, just this idea of what question needs to be answered right now in order for you to take the next step towards then building a graphic. Um, and I find things like that useful for myself as well, because sometimes even if you're doing these all of the time, you just sit down and you can't get past that first step. And, you know, you start to procrastinate and you just need to get started on the project. And so um, something like a decision tree, it's like, okay, I just need to answer this question. And then suddenly you're answering the next question. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you're like, you're problem solving and you're getting it done. Um, So I think it's just kind of a useful tool for uh, for novices and uh, and professionals alike. I'm curious when you make that, you know, get through that whole process, the manuscript is accepted and there's going to be a graphic. Do you find that most of your work is creating a new graphic or is it mostly taking what's already in the academic paper and modifying it to make it more suitable for this broader audience? I think it's about half and half. I love doing makeover graphics because, you know, when you see that like a scientist has like problem solved it and they figured out an interesting way to um to convey the information in visual form, whether it's a data visualization yeah. or a explanatory diagram, um, that's really exciting because you're like, yeah. okay, they have the metaphor or they have this really unique way of looking at the information, and they know the information better than I do. So like, let's roll with that, and now let's start right. to unpack it and make it more accessible to more people. Sometimes that means like you know mm-hmm. making it aesthetically pleasing, but also just doing things like getting rid of jargon and, and in both like labels and in um, image form, like, uh, and just start to make it more accessible. Um, so I love doing those. Um, but other times it's like this opportunity to create something new. It's like, okay, I can't find a way that somebody else has successfully like 
created a graphic about this topic that feels like it would be useful in this context. Yeah. So then it's just like really kind of walking through those steps and trying to figure out what is the goal of this graphic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, is, is a metaphor useful to help explain this? What kind of graphic is it going to be? Is it something that's comparing and contrasting? Is it showing change over time? Um, so just kind of walking through and, and, and trying to figure out a, a good solution for that. And one of my favorite parts about that is working with other professional designers. Um, because I'm kind of a project manager mm -hmm. of sorts. So I'm working as a liaison between right. freelancers and scientists and my text editing colleagues. Um, so that becomes a pretty collaborative um, experience. Yeah. So on this process, and then I'll then we'll get into some specific parts. So on this process, what is it like working with a scientist creating an entirely new graphic? Maybe it's on the process of the of the of the experiment, it's on the process of the of the science itself. What does that process look like? Because I, I'm guessing that there's prob. I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing there's a pretty large amount of education that you are doing with the scientists to say, this is why we want to have this totally new diagram about your work. And I'm curious about how they respond and how they work in that process with you. Well, it's interesting because although scientists are very often the author um, of the text itself, and so they're um, featured prominently mm -hmm. as this is their work, um, the magazine does have full control over the imagery that goes with it because we're the ones that are then investing in um, the money and time um, to, to make those elements right. happen. Um, so, And it needs to happen quickly. So there's a lot of kind of efficient, just sort of, you know, here's what we think the graphic plan should be, you know, and so that's being communicated yeah. either through me or through my text editing colleague. And so it's sort of, here's what we think would be a good idea for our audience. We, you know, we're constantly saying, you know, we understand that these ways of showing it might be great for your peers. We're dealing with another audience that we know pretty well, or we know better than perhaps you do. Right. And so this is what we think will be useful for our audience on our formats. Um, and then the conversation mm -hmm. shifts a little bit towards, is this accurate? Are we describing things correctly? Mm -hmm. Can you, um, if we're not, can you help us understand why? So it kind of shifts the conversation mm -hmm. from um, what do they think is the thing that we should be illustrating to, this is where we're thinking we should go. Can you help us mm -hmm. do that to the best of our ability? Right. I gotcha. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and, and talk about some specific parts of the book because I, um, for those who listen to the show, like what I the way these work is I usually send the guests like a list of questions and when I had to do Jen for for the list to send you was like I really had to shorten it because I had about thirteen bullet points and I had to just like because there's just so much great stuff in here so I kind of picked out like the things that I think may be the most helpful to people who are working in data may not be designers and are sort of scientists that I think for me, at least were kind of like the most useful part to think about design. So the first thing I want to talk about was grids because you have an entire chapter devoted to grids. And, um, and this is sort of overlapped with some work I've been doing in dashboard design where I see so many people just like focusing on, on grids. And I wanted to ask you, what is so special about grids? What should people think about it, about working in grids? And, and I have a kind of a follow-up question to all of that which is when I look at a lot of the graphics in, in the book and in Scientific American, it kind of feels like it doesn't work in a grid. It feels more like organic and flowing. But then when I look at how you draw out the grid, I'm like, oh yeah, it does fit into this like really nice grid structure. And so I'm curious how you 
play with grids a little bit to kind of not feel kind of so rectangular and make it feel more integrated in, in kind of a way, if that, if that makes sense. So that's a big question to say, tell us everything we need to know about designing in grids. <laughs> I don't know if I could say everything you need to know. There are entire books written on this topic, but <laughs> right, uh, right, let's right. start by saying that. So for folks who are unfamiliar with grids, they're, um, they're literally like the same thing as those like ruled loose leaf paper pages that you learn to write on as a kid. Um, so yeah. they're a guiding <laughs> system of vertical and horizontal lines. Um, a graph paper is another kind of design grid. Um, more useful ones for design purposes, I think, are generally larger. Um, like if you think in terms of the guides that shape newspaper columns or um, modular website designs. Um, so I think mm -hmm. they're a really useful starting point because they force you to immediately start making conscious decisions um, so immediately you're thinking, oh, okay, should the title and caption of my graphic span one column or two? Um, does the imagery fit mm -hmm. into kind of modules that are side by side or on top of each other? Um, and so they kind of, uh, they're, they're an efficient way to impose order and kind of this conscious level of visual hierarchy. You're suddenly forced to kind of mm -hmm. move objects around within this kind of set space. Um, some designers mm -hmm. do eschew them all together. And I think you kind of picked up on this. I do love breaking the grid as much as I love starting with one. Um, so breaking the grid mm. just means that you're including elements that, um, that don't align perfectly with those guidelines, but you're making a conscious choice to do so for a particular reason. Um, so for me, I like right. to sometimes highlight a key annotation by putting it in a circle that kind of pops out of the edge of that column a little bit or something. And that draws attention, mm. um, sort of implies that this information is pretty critical. Mm -hmm. But in general, I think just starting with a grid um, takes the edge off of being faced with a blank page. And they force you to mm -hmm. think about things kind of logically. Um, and that helps give readers a sense of the different subsections within your graphic or page. Now, I think they're most important when it comes to things like aligning text and labels. I think imagery can start to mm. kind of pop out of that. And that might have been what you were picking up with, with that kind of more organic feel of some pages. When you look at them, you don't mm -hmm. think, well, this just yeah. looks like a, a grid. Um, so some elements can kind of, yeah. um, you know, uh, expand beyond that. But if you have your captions and your labels and your annotations kind of aligned and very orderly, um, it kind of helps the reader uh, see that hierarchy a little bit more clearly, I think. Right. Right. So it's really interesting the way you say, you know, you've got this bubble or circles is, is a good, is a good, simple example. And it just kind of pop breaks that like that edge of that grid just a little bit. I mean, you see it, but I kind of feel it when I look at some of the graphics in, in your book. I can really feel that that's the thing that's kind of different from everything else on the page because the, you know, the text is left aligned and the title is right here. But there's this thing in the middle just feels a little bit different for some reason. And that's where my eye kind of just just goes naturally. Right. Yeah, I think it's really useful for annotations that really call out, this is the important part, you know, or, or uh, mm -hmm. to help people follow like, okay, there's three bits that are um, popping out of this grid. Those three things are probably related somehow. Um, yeah. So the other part of the book that I found really interesting was on posters, uh, academic posters. And um, there, I've had a few people on the show, Mike Morrison and uh, Zen Fox, who, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about academic posters, but it was really interesting to see it in here because it's such a kind of niche area for scientists and they have this like 
full reference book in front of them that they can use and they can use it in their own work. Um, even without like having something published in scientific American, which I just love. Like I can just imagine scientists just like picking this up, reading that and just having like that section, like earmarked and ready to roll. I guess my question is pretty broad, but I just wonder about um, how you think about academic posters whether you talk to scientists that you work with about their work in posters and what is your kind of main view of making better posters for a, you know, an academic conference? Sure. So um, for your listeners that, that aren't scientists, um, and you, you kind of uh, helped explain <laughs> this a bit, but it's really common for science conferences to have uh, poster sessions. So it's like basically just this hotel ballroom filled with room dividers that have like large paper posters affixed to them with pins. Um, they're like four to five foot printouts often. And during a session, um, a scientist generally stands by their poster and um, kind of talks through people through it about their research. And they use their poster as a visual aid. So it's very science fair-esque. Um, you know, attendees are milling through the space and, and yeah, uh, right, it's, it is, yeah. yeah. So, um, so it kind of fascinates me that there's such a common occurrence at science conferences, but I think it's safe to say that scientists aren't being trained to thoughtfully design them. I think they're often given templates, but yeah. not necessarily um, uh, any, any training or discussion of how to really make the best use of them. Um, they often hold like way too much text, yeah. the font size isn't legible, and they're totally lacking in breathing space or a clear indication of kind of the flow of information. Um, mm. So in my book, I encourage scientists to approach a full poster as if they're designing one huge graphic, because that's pretty much what it is. I mean, it, mm. you might have a little more text than mm -hmm. a graphic technically would, but, um, but maybe it shouldn't. Um, and I know there's a lot of folks... Mm who are exploring different ways of doing posters. And some say you shouldn't have any text at all. You should just have a QR code or, you know, others are these interactive screens <laughs> that are amazing. Right. But I'm thinking like, what are people actually doing right now? I mean, I feel like it's a lot of like with yeah. your work on Excel and PowerPoint, it's like, these are the tools or this is the product that people are mm -hmm. using right now. Like we can be aspirational about really um, sure. rethinking the how it, that happens at all. But in this moment in time, these printed posters are, you know, what most people Still are using. what we're doing. Yep. Yeah. So I think just people need to like start with a grid, use negative space instead of box mm -hmm. frames. Um, think about what your main mm -hmm. takeaways are, how you can use color and scale and position to bring attention to those takeaways. Um, but most importantly, I think mm -hmm. just remember that all of that needs to be done at a scale that can be read and skimmed from like several feet away in a room with like dubious yeah. lighting and like there's lots of chatter and activity. <laughs> yep. So like 100%. there's a lot going yeah. on. It, it shouldn't be your, yeah. your science paper just kind of reformatted for a wall. Yeah. 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 Yeah, dubious lighting is definitely, I'm going to hold on to that for sure. Um, so I want to talk about process again, because like I said, that's like a good chunk of the book. Okay, so when it comes to posters, uh, so here's my question. So a scientist comes to this section of the book, they're looking through some of the amazing graphics in here, and I'm going to show one here for the, for the video folks. Uh, for those who are listening, this is, I mean, it, it's a graphic here. The title is A Churning Burning Star, and it's got like all these illustrations of, you know, the inside of a of a planet or a star with these illustrations on the side and its motion and, and this and that. And so, Jen, my, my question to you is, a scientist goes through this book, they are excited about 
what they can do, but they come and they see something like this and they say, but I don't know how to draw this illustration or find this photograph. Like, so what is your recommendation to those folks who have the science, they are excited about the process, but they don't necessarily have those particular design skills. Maybe they buy into the whole grid and everything you've already mentioned, but they don't know how to get to this, this stage of it. Right. So that, um, that illustration that you described is from science. I believe it was um, drawn by Chris Bickle, who is a professional illustrator, right? So, and it's for, um, I think the, yeah. the front section of science. So it's kind of in their, their journalistic, you know, for a broad audience, uh, part of the magazine. So, um, so it's gorgeous, but not everything needs to be rendered to that beautiful yeah. scale. So I just really think mm. that folks who maybe don't have those rendering skills right now, it's just to really think about um, objects and how they're placed on a page and how somebody moves through a space. One of the reasons graphics like that are so mm -hmm. gorgeous is because you need to entice a reader to kind of to join in and to investigate it. A lot of scientists right. is being done for other scientists who already want to read that paper. So you already have your audience. So now your goal mm -hmm. is to help them understand things in a better way. Um, so some of the goals are slightly different depending yeah. on your audience. Um, that said, there are tools that help that can be used to help. Um, things like uh, PhiloPic is um, it's an online resource of uh, like thousands of animal drawings that are for very specific species. They're little um, silhouettes. And so, and they're, yeah. I believe, under a Creative Commons license. So there's there's things that you can use, things like clip art that's done by other people who know that it needs to be accurate. Right. And then there's also just, well, you can learn to draw if you'd like. You know, there's different books and mm -hmm. resources that can help you along yeah. that path. Or you can hire collaborators. And if you, you know, like you might think I don't have the budget to hire somebody to do this, but if you problem solve out what you think, how you think the information might best be presented and, and then in, involve a collaborator as, as a, doing different parts of that whole, that might bring your prices down a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. so, so I think, you know, folks, yeah. when they see these gorgeous three-dimensional drawings or things that are like award-winning pieces. It's like, just to remember, well, that's for one purpose. Um, but you don't need to have those skills to kind of yeah. successful graphics for other purposes. Yeah. I think that's such a great point that, yeah, the goal is different when you're doing an academic poster, um, and the audience is different. And yeah, I think that's just like a great point that, uh, people shouldn't feel down <laughs> that they're not an award-winning designer and and really get information out there. Um, okay, so the so I've mentioned this a few times already, but the last third of the book is on the creative process, and um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about. You've already talked a little bit about it, but maybe talk a little bit more about how you see scientists building out their own process to create more effective visuals be it for a poster or their papers or a slide presentation or whatever it might be? What does that process look like for them? Well, it's, I think it starts by, you know, determining whether a graphic would be useful, um, figuring out what the goal of the graphic should be, where is it going to live, who is its audience, kind of walking through those questions to help to kind of 
define your edges and kind of help focus your your thought. Mm-hmm. Um, like you might be envisioning this grand piece, but if it needs to be uh, visible on a mobile phone, uh, that grand vision isn't going to work. So it's just kind of creating your edges by answering mm-hmm. a series of questions about where is it going to be, what does it need to show, mm-hmm. and who is the audience for it. Um, so kind of walking through those things and then starting to do concept sketches like doodles, like just really rough exploratory doodles um, as you're doing the research to kind of shift your mind from thinking in terms of words into images and how can imagery tell that story um, in a way that might be more efficient than words. Um and then as you start to kind mm-hmm. of hone in on something that feels like it's starting to work, then develop a more kind of fully realized concept sketch and get feedback from others. And then um, just kind of narrow things down and get them more and more close to final um, through that process. I, I think the message that I'm picking up here from you is to not see something that's in Scientific American or Science or National Geographic as a scientist and feel like that's your goal. And instead, to think about what you have in front of you, your skill set, and, and go a little bit more slowly and just concentrate on your goals for your particular audience. And you don't, you know, it's almost like perfection is the enemy of the good in this case. Yeah. And I also think that, like, you know, when we're developing graphics for places like Scientific American and National Geographic, it's also the thought process that we're putting into the first stages are very similar to what I think anybody should be doing. And I like to tell people that um, you need to think about getting the bones organized properly before fleshing it out. And so if you just stop Mm -hmm. at that bones stage, that's still really informative. Fleshing it out might be the, Mm -hmm. um, like taking it over the top in terms of uh, aesthetics and beauty and, and really kind of a professional veneer, but if you can get the right. information organized in a useful and kind of clear way, that's like 90% of the, of the job in many ways. Like if you don't get right. that right, then no matter how, yeah. you know, beautifully rendered it is, it's not going to be useful to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what I, what I love about the book is it does have a little bit of sort of like your best practices. There's a section, a really nice section on color and there's a section on grids but it, but the focus of the work is not sort of the standard like 101 kind of book. It's taking us to the next level, which I think is like kind of this new evolution or next phase of, of data viz, data communication books um, on this design, on these layouts, on this structure, on this process, um, which I think just like opens doors for people. Um especially to think more creatively that you don't have to be skilled in everything to be able to make beautiful looking projects and products. Great. That's, that's great to hear. Cause I did want it to be very inviting and useful to a wide range of people. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I love your takeaway on that. Thanks. The last part I want to talk about was the actual production of the book, because there is among all the other amazing things in this book, the thing that caught my eye when I just like first opened it, is you don't have figure numbers. It's not like C image 2.1. It doesn't even say see the figure below or see the figure on the next page. You have these little pointers directly from the text to the image or to the graphic or or to the the caption. And so I want to ask you, what was your thought process behind approaching it that way? And then what was your production process like? Because I think for anyone who's tried to publish a book, 
or just a journal article for, for that matter. Like working with a lot of production companies is not a very easy process. So I'm curious about how you um, uh, conceptualize it and then actually put it into practice. Yeah. So I knew if I was ever going to write a book, I wanted to design it too. Um, and that didn't feel like too big of a leap because mm -hmm. I've been um, working in magazine and textbook design for a long time. So I knew a lot of, uh, I knew I had the InDesign skills to, to make that happen. Um, and I was also really inspired right. by um, Ellen Lupton, who's an author and designer who designs mm -hmm. her own books and her book collaborations um, and has talked about it. If you look up, um, uh, she has some great uh, YouTube videos, uh, lectures that were really inspiring. Um, but I wanted to design it not because I thought I'd be creating this like award-winning book design because like I'm not a professional book designer. Mm -hmm. There are people like Stephanie Posovec who are, who take it to the next level. Yeah, right, right. But I wanted to approach the book like a large graphic. Um, and so for, for that to happen, I knew that the text and the mm -hmm. visual elements needed to evolve together. Um, and, mm. and, and part of that is like, I didn't want the reader to have to pause and search for things. So when I wasn't able to kind of yeah. put a graphic like right in the text where I talk about it, um, I simply like, as you described, used a line to connect the period of the sentence that related to that image to the image itself. Yeah. And so then that line is like yeah. a bookmark. Um, so when the reader is done looking at the image, they just follow it right back to where they left off. So there's not this disconnect right. and kind of popping around and like, I'm, I'm just helping their eye go where I intended it to go next, um, much in the same way I would do mm -hmm. within just a graphic itself. So in, in order to make that work, um, I wrote rough drafts in Google documents, but then I moved things over mm -hmm. really early on into InDesign page layouts. So I actually created the design and figured out the typography of the book and everything before I had written much more than the like the introduction, you know. Um, and yeah. so then I was writing and editing to fit so that the images would fall on the same spread as the text that referenced them. Yeah. So in that way, it kind of became like right. I have this page and this page is a graphic and there's this much text and what do right. I need to cut? There's a lot of back and forth. Um, and yeah. one of the reasons I wanted to prioritize that is because I got really weary of reading about design principles and perception science research results in documents that didn't walk the talk. Like, you know, so many books, <laughs> include, like, yeah, they include discussion of things like yeah. gestalt principles of proximity, you know, like really kind of these foundational right. ideas. And then they don't enact those ideas in the design of the book. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why are we telling people this is important? Yeah. And then we're not showing them that it's important. I should say, you know, this kind of goes back to challenges in working with um, like larger production groups is um, it's amazing working with a publisher um, and with the great team of editors, but there are um, some things you can't control then. And so, um, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm being a little bit of a hypocrite in, in one piece about this. So I address the topic of accessibility in the book, um, but my decision mm -hmm. to focus on creating a print design that reflected the, the design principles that I write about meant that I removed some flexibility in how that content appears in ebook form. And that's because I was right. going from like a bespoke right. print design into an automated ebook workflow. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, ideally I could have designed the ebook separately myself as well and included like responsive versions of graphics when possible. Um, but that wasn't an option. Um, and so I'm sad right. that I wasn't able to walk the talk 
as much in the electronic version for accessibility reasons. So that was kind of the the part that right. I was most sad about. Yeah. Well, like you said, it's, you know, it's an evolution. So, so maybe this book sets the stage to say, how do we get from here to an ebook technology that actually works in that way? Because I think the book itself takes us another a step forward, right? Because it does integrate everything together. How can we build that in the digital technology to make that work for people who have vision or physical impairments to work in the, in the digital world? So, um, so I can imagine why you said you're not going to create the ebook on your own. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty amazing, incredible amount of work. But I just love the overall design and how you, like you said, everything is just kind of integrated together. Um, and the cover, right? The cover was designed by Allie Torben. Yes, she designed the illustration on yours? the cover, which I was very excited about. It was so great right. uh, working yeah. with her. I love working with other designers to see what their process is like. And hers is really like thoughtful, mm -hmm. um, a series of questions about who the audience was and the tone and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a real treat. It was kind of a treat to myself to go ahead and commission um, some cover art yeah. Um, for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, the book is great. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, good luck with um, shopping this around at all the signs. I'm sure you're going to have to take like boxes of them to every science conference now um, around the country. So um, <laughs> good luck. Thank uh, you. Bringing them around. But, but congrats again. It's, it's great. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for chatting. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you will check out Jen's book and I hope you will learn a lot about communicating science information. If you would like to support the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast provider. You can find me on YouTube at policyviz.com and of course on Twitter. So until next time, this has been the PolicyViz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the PolicyViz Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsuki Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy Viz Podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our PayPal page or our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.